What might human society look like without scarcity? And when I say scarcity, I mean it in the economic sense, the limited availability of resources, of water, of computer, of transportation, of land, of video game consoles. Our economic models, all of them, economics in general, are predicated on this concept that there simply is not enough to go around. And the question of how we might divvy resources out in the most equitable way possible. Some models say that this family, they'll be in charge, they will decide who gets what, and they themselves will get a lot more than everyone else. Because this family will kind of be our mascots, but also potentially our sometimes murdery benefactors. And they'll make sure that no one else steps up and takes too much by enforcing laws using the military that they also control. Now that's roughly the logic behind traditional monarchical systems, with kings and queens and serfs and things of that nature. And those monarchical systems are one way of ensuring that these finite resources do not get used up that the fields do not go fallow, that the water doesn't get too polluted to use, and that the sheep are not all killed for a single massive feast that then leaves everyone without wool next winter. Now, a monarchy is a type of governing system. It allows for the governance of people and the regional finite resources. An economic system moderates the use and the exchange of these resources. So you might have a monarchy, a king or a queen, or another royal family member of some kind, lording over a feudal system, which was a method of organizing society so that most people worked the land in some capacity, while the landowners provided the fundamentals for those workers. So the warrior class, they defended the land, the peasantry, They worked the land. The clergy tended to all those people who worked the land and their faith needs. And the nobility made sure that everything ran as smoothly as a feudal system could run, including exchanging their own resources for the resources produced by other feudal groups with other collections of peasants, clergy, nobility, and so on. Old school monarchies were typically predicated on manoralistic systems, otherwise known as fiefdoms. Rather than using money to exchange value, the higher-ups owned the land and the workers worked the land, and then they kept a part of what they made on that land, but gave the rest to the lord of the manor, to the nobility. So under this system, most people were tied to the land in that they had implicit obligations just for being born there and for surviving using the resources stemming from the land that they and their family worked and that this lord owned. The exchanges of resources between manors, say, one lord wanted to trade some sheep to another lord to get some stone in return, settlers of Catan style. These exchanges were usually done resource for resource rather than using any kind of intermediary system like currency. Though IOUs 
were common, especially as markets evolved in the twilight years of fiefdom-style systems. And it's those IOUs that developed into currency, essentially notes that said they were exchangeable for goods or resources if turned in to the signatory wealthy person or entity who had created it in the first place. And then currency and the market systems surrounding currency led to another economic system that is prevalent throughout the world in many different shapes. Capitalism, for all of its flaws, is far more equitable and fair by almost every metric than manneralism ever could be. There are some parallels that still exist between it and that old, outdated fiefdom system. The currencies we use, for instance, are tied to resources, at least in theory, that are held by our governments. And we need to use these notes to exchange value, which feels a bit like an echo of that system that bound us to the land in which we were born, forced to work that land to make up for an implied debt that we owed to the people who owned that land. But again, in almost every way, it's still an absolutely wonderful leap forward, capitalism. And that's even true under governmental systems that use this economic system, but which warp it to serve very non-liberal democratic ends. China, for example, began its modern iteration decrying capitalism, only to become, in recent decades, one of the most impressive capitalistic entities on the planet, even if they do manage their markets in a very different way than other governments. Their model is substantially different from that of the United States, the UK, the EU, but the underlying system of exchanging value is the same. The tenets of the global marketplace in which they participate are the same. So even under different methods of governmental rule, economically, capitalistic marketplaces are one of the better means of distributing resources equitably that we've ever figured out, at least thus far. Rather than receiving bare-bones subsistence from their effort while giving away the fruits of that effort to the landowners in the manor, most people under capitalistic systems are able to choose their work. They're able to choose how they spend their free time. They can choose how to spend their money on what types of food, what types of shelter, what types of entertainments or novelties. There is still no real way out of this system, which can make it seem a little bit like a gilded cage at times, if you think about it. In most countries around the world, if you cease or slow your active participation in the capitalistic system, you will also cease to have any power, any influence, cease to have a voice, maybe, within politics. And you may even come to lack food to eat or water to drink. We're not exactly tied to the land in the fiefdom sense, but we're not exactly liberated completely from it either. But by most metrics, again, this is a very solid step in the right direction. But what direction might that be? What other models might be possible that would help us utilize our finite resources appropriately and fairly so that more people are able to live well, according to their own standards for the word well, and so that the commons, the shared space and resources we all have access to, don't collapse under the weight of selfish or thoughtless individuals. One method that's been tried several times, particularly 
in the 19th and 20th centuries, which makes sense as it only emerged in its early form in the late 18th century, is communism. An interesting fact that is often left out of the conversation about communism is that we've never actually seen the true results that should, in theory, arise from those who hold communist ideals. We've never actually seen the consequences of communism. We've only ever seen the precursor efforts. And what I mean by that is a communist society is the supposed end goal of communism. Such a society would be one in which everyone owns everything. Importantly, that includes the means of production of all things, and everyone can have whatever they want that derives from these means of production, while the government itself is really not much of a government. No one would need to rule anyone else, it's posited, because everyone would have everything they need. It would be an age of superabundance, not scarcity. So why would anyone need to rob anyone else? Why would anyone need to commit a crime when they're, you know, doing pretty well, when they have everything that they want or need? They're free to pursue their happiness in a world in which there's no class system and no power structures, and there's no oppression or suppression, and no scarcity of any kind. That's the end goal of the communist process. Communism is a political model that is supposed to get us there. So all the communism we've ever seen, from China to the Soviet Union to Cuba, is meant to be an intermediary step a necessary moment in time in which we rework everything, we get everything into place so that we are ready for that next utopian stage of plenty and classlessness. But of course, we've never even caught a glimpse of that next stage. This is in part because there is very little incentive for those supposedly temporary dictators in charge of communist governments to ever step down from their position of power. What happens, then, in practice, is that a move that is meant to provide dictatorial powers to a small group of people so that those people can free everyone from oppression instead results in a continuous state of oppression, tempered by the promise that someday it will end. We will arrive at that utopian dream. Heaven will arrive, so behave and do what you're told until we get there. This moment in the theoretical communist timeline even has a name, the dictatorship of the proletariat. The idea being that this is not a small group of people who have taken over and amassed all the power and resources for themselves. It's the people who are doing those things. The people are being represented by these dictators, which is a clever way of phrasing things, but the difference between this type of authoritarian society and the type of authoritarian society that evolves around a fascist dictator is still pretty unclear, except for that dream of a future in which these all-powerful leaders decide to step down because there's no longer any scarcity left in the world, and because they've apparently set aside every rule of human nature we've ever seen demonstrated by leaders throughout history. Rather than 
trying to amass more power and hold on to the power that they have, they will decide to give it all up. That is the theory of communism. I will leave it to you to decide if that seems likely or not. But we have not seen it happen so far. What I want to talk about today isn't communism or the communist state, but rather the concept of a transition to something new economically, to some new modus operandi beyond what we've known for the last several hundred years, as the divine rule of monarchies gave way to the semi-divine rule of the invisible hand of economics, and the benefits gained by this collection of interrelated systems largely overtook all competitors. Can this actually be it? Can this model that we use today be the last stage of social and resource management evolution? And if not, how might we safely transition to something new when we don't know exactly where we're going, what we'll find when we get there, and whether or not that new system will be better than what we have today? You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today comes from The Guardian, and it's entitled, UK State Should Pay for Housing, Food, Transport, and Internet, Says Report. This article outlines the findings of a report published by the Institute for Global Prosperity in London, in which they studied potential consequences of increased automation and other evolutions in technology, and possible solutions to the problems that could arise as a result of these changes, and problems that are already happening in some cases within some industries. And what they came up with was a £42 billion solution, that is £42 billion British pounds sterling, that would fund the construction of 1.5 million new homes, all of which would be provided for free to those who cannot afford a home, food service infrastructure that would be developed and implemented to provide one-third of all meals for 2.2 million households who currently experience food insecurity, and free bus passes, phone and internet services, and BBC services to everyone for free as part of this solution. This report was released at a fairly opportune time, at least in terms of getting attention. Recent studies have shown that an increasing percentage of the population in the UK would support the public ownership of certain utilities like water and railways. And other studies have shown that workers in the UK in particular, perhaps more than many other developed economies, are at risk of being replaced or devalued as a consequence of automation in various fields. So a lot of people seem to see the writing on the wall and are worried that their career trajectories might nosedive. And consequently, folks are considering some things, like the public ownership of utilities, that are not typically very popular when most people feel secure financially, and particularly when they feel secure about their financial futures. It's important to note that although many write-ups of this report, including this article in The Guardian, are declaring this to be a universal basic services plan, or UBS, 
and indeed the report itself uses that term, it is not really that. Other UBSs have been proposed over the years in countries around the world, and this proposal deviates from those plans in several important ways, but especially in the relative non-inclusiveness of most of the benefits that it is offering. A quote from a piece published about this report on the website for the RSA, the Royal Society of Arts, Manufactures, and Commerce, explains why. Quote, On closer reading, it turns out that universal basic services are no such thing. The maximum value would accrue to 1.5 million households, those who benefit from the free housing component. For the other tens of millions, the value is quickly reduced to £39 a week. And if you don't or can't use public transport, for example, if you live outside of cities, then the value is a mere £18 per week. And if you don't wish to take up the food support, then the value to you is £5 of free broadband and mobile, the only quote-unquote universal element, end quote. So this plan, as proposed at least, would not be a full-fledged UBS, a universal basic services plan, in the traditional sense. But even with that said, this story still jumped out at me for a handful of reasons. First, it's interesting to see proactive solutions proposed, even when we have no idea whether those solutions might ever be taken seriously or actually applied in real life. There's a good chance that something like this proposal could be run through the governmental system, only to look completely different when it comes out on the other side. The UK could end up with a neutered version of what's been proposed by this report, and few or none of the benefits it suggests could arise as a result. But all the same, acting on such an issue before the full impact of the issues it's meant to counteract have arrived namely widespread unemployment due to a combination of technological and social changes, that's pretty rare. Because of the nature of our political systems, these things usually don't catch any serious attention until the disaster has already begun. And by most indications, although we're already seeing some limited consequences of these shifts, we have not begun to see the real changes quite yet. So it's interesting that this type of proposal is arriving relatively early compared to other responses to other potential future disasters or major shifts historically. Second, it's a compelling middle ground approach when compared to some of the other options currently on the table. And there are a lot of options across the spectrum, ranging from more of the same, doubling down on our existing system of work and money and being as free market friendly as feasible, to the other side, where proponents of the universal basic income are proposing fairly radical shifts in how people and governments interact and potentially how the global economy operates. This approach, some version of universal basic services, would probably be somewhere in between those two extremes. It allows for the propagation of pretty much everything that exists today. There are not any radical shifts in this proposal in terms of how the market operates or the relationship between the people and the government, except for in very limited cases, which I'll get to in a moment. 
but it does change the shape of the safety net so that those who are currently unsupported or undersupported might get more support. And those who may someday find themselves looking down the barrel of an upended career path due to automation or whatever else, they wouldn't be left with nothing. Third, there would necessarily be some disruption within some currently public sectors. It would be incredibly difficult to make mobile internet services free for the population of a country, for instance, without creating and then defending some kind of monopoly or making local service providers part of a publicly owned utility. This may seem like a minor issue, but there would be ripple effects felt throughout the economy. The free market does not optimize everything it touches for a lot of reasons, but the creation of monopolies comes with its own issues and inefficiencies. On top of that, the people who don't make use of a particular extra, like public transportation for instance, are still paying into it regardless. So even if you live in an area without usable public transport, or if you walk everywhere, never using the bus or the train, you're still paying for it. Now this is good in a way for truly necessary beneficial public features and resources that wouldn't be available via any other means. But even the good uses of it could become negative with time, as it could mean automatic support for antique infrastructure, for goods and services that are no longer necessary, because their support is built into the system, not because everyone uses it. Said another way, there would need to be some kind of performance and necessity guidelines to ensure that these taxes people are paying to support these governmentally provided goods are actually things that people need, rather than things that people needed 10 years ago, or that people in some areas need, but which people in other areas do not, or things that people in the government assume that the people need, but in reality they do not. Fourth, when public figures begin to make announcements about things, and begin to share their ideas about them, offer up solutions for them, you know that the tone of the conversation has shifted. That's a milestone. In this case, the organization involved is connected to a prominent university, and one of the figures who published it is Jonathan Portes, the former chief economist at the Department for Work and Pensions, who then became the chief economist at the cabinet office. After life as a public servant, he became the director for the National Institute of Economic and Social Research and took a position as a professor of economic and public policy at the School of Politics and Economics of King's College in London. The other figure in charge of producing and presenting this proposal is Professor Henrietta Moore, who is a social anthropologist and the director of the Institute for Global Prosperity, the organization at University College in London that published this report. That fairly well-known people with well-established accolades are standing up for something non-standard implies that the conversation has shifted. The release of this report, with their names attached, suggests that this has gone beyond a concept whispered about over lunch with colleagues in private, and it's become something a little more serious. It's something to which people are willing to attach both their names and their credibility. Fifth, this plan is interesting in part because of what it doesn't do, as much as for what it does. As mentioned in the Guardian article, part of the pitch 
for this approach to constructing a safety net is that it's fairly similar to the existing National Health Services, or NHS, principles and operations. The money would be managed a little differently, and the raft of services made available would be different. But in essence, it's rearranged welfare, a new riff on the same. It's taking what's there and saying, okay, some of these things will be reorganized, and some will be combined, some will be split apart, and some will add new offerings and responsibilities. This is a smart way to pitch what could otherwise be viewed as a radical idea to a group of people who are resistant to dramatic change, which is something that you could say about most politicians. Superficial changes might be feasible, but wholesale overhauls to the system? No way. That system put those politicians where they are into power. And so that is a system that most politicians will defend. And so promoting this in a high-concept way, kind of like pitching the movie Alien to producers as Jaws in space, allows those who would be naturally reluctant to even consider such a thing a lot less so. It allows them to envision it better and see it in the context of existing programs, along with the associated pros and cons of those existing programs. And it also allows them to potentially preemptively address issues that are on the near-future docket, but not currently at the forefront of everyone's mind. Which, if they're really trying to help people, and I'm guessing that most of them actually do want to do that, as much as skepticism is warranted when dealing with people in positions of power, then this is something that allows them to do that to help people in a new way. It is a new tool that they have been shown, that they've been made aware of, that can be added to their toolbox, which could allow them to build some new things and potentially fix some existing things. Perhaps most importantly, this report will give critics and supporters of something like a universal basic services plan a place to start. Public conversations about anything are less likely to take productive shape if we don't have a starting point. We need serious proposals that we can then support or dismiss, that we can critique and adjust. Most people are more comfortable stating their support or opposition to something than being asked to build something from scratch. And in my mind, one of the most important roles that this proposed Universal Basic Services report serves is as a starting point, and one that's tolerable to both those who want everything to stay the same forever and nothing to ever change, and to those who want something radical. They want sweeping changes to the existing status quo. This concept could really go either way. You could look at it and see a heartening, calming iteration of what's come before, or you could see the first step towards some kind of revolution. And you could be right either way, so long as we're treating it as a starting point rather than a final destination. So the report at the center of this article is interesting in large part because of the role it could play in catalyzing that larger conversation. It is a concrete proposal that we can now tear apart to use as construction materials for other more specific and probably more dramatic and divisive proposals. I've spoken in past episodes about how private enterprise is coming to provide many services at rates that allow us to see them, potentially, almost like a form of welfare 
when packaged together correctly by an entity that benefits from the economies of scale, so the more they produce, the cheaper each unit of service becomes. Things like bus passes, and Amazon Prime, and premium TV channels, and even housing, can become incredibly inexpensive compared to less efficient, smaller-scale efforts. It makes sense that we might come to wonder why our governments, or government-connected entities, couldn't do the same. Couldn't take some of our largest expenses, but importantly some of our fundamental needs, like food and shelter, information and entertainment, and package them together at a reduced cost. At a certain point, that cost could approach zero, depending on how innovative we are when it comes to building new apartment buildings and greenhouses and communication satellite arrays. And from that perspective, this concept does seem like a decent step toward raising the floor for everyone. And when I say floor, I'm talking about the ceilings and floors that exist economically within society. The highest you can possibly reach and the lowest you can possibly fall. In the UK right now, and in the US as well, I would argue, the ceilings are immensely high. You can become incredibly wealthy and spend that wealth in countless ways. But the floors are also quite low relative to what they could be. They are not as low as the floors in some developing countries, but relative to the ceilings and how high those have climbed, it's kind of insane how low the floors are. And that contrast is important because in many cases, keeping the floor low is part of what allows those ceilings to stay high and to climb ever higher. And for the scant few people who are able to enjoy the highest of the high ceilings, that probably seems like a pretty good deal. But for everyone else, the potential of a drop down to the bottom, down to that floor, that can be harsh and scary. But those closer to the ceiling also have a great deal of influence over things like tax law and welfare systems, which means they also largely control the height of that ceiling and how far down the floor is. And as their wealth and power grows, so too do the disparities between the haves and the have-nots. The result is that even as overall societal productivity grows and national wealth increases, the benefits primarily flow into just a few fortunate pockets, the pockets of those who benefit from these incremental changes and those who are able to reinforce their position in society by convincing a bunch of the plebes, those of us down closer to the floor, that they actually have our best interests in mind, even while passing legislation that does the exact opposite. And this is part of why it's interesting to see anything, any potential change that could address those floors and where they are relative to the ceilings to see it get this level of attention and scrutiny. It may be that it's a terrible solution for the problems that exist. It may be that it's a lukewarm approach to something that needs a fireball to actually get anything done. It may be that it's a cynical preemptive straw man served up as an attempt to deflect and distract from more radical proposals from other political and economic entities. But whatever the case, it still sends up a balloon about this grab bag of issues that will attract some headlines and give the public a jumping off point for conversation about these topics and what might be done. Now, there's another facet to this story as well that I think is important, but it kind of flies off in a radically different direction from the practical aspects we've been talking about so far. 
So let's ease into it with a question. What would you do if you didn't have to worry about money? Or to get more specific, how would you spend your time if you didn't have to pay rent, buy groceries, or pay for utilities or internet or transportation? If those fundamental requirements for living in the modern world were taken care of, how would you spend your time? What would you do with yourself? Take a moment to really think about that. It's a strange question to ask, because I'm guessing, if you're anything like me, at least, the first things that come to mind are probably not the actual completely truthful answer that you would give had you taken longer to think about what having all those fundamentals taken care of would actually mean. Typical answers to this question tend to fit well within the current system. They're things that make sense within the context of a world in which you have to work most of your waking hours, and you only have a very small, very set period of time with which to explore other things. So people latch on to those other things that they do today under this current system, this current method of organizing one's life and one's time, and they expand upon that. So if they take dance classes on weekends and enjoy painting one night a week, they say they would dance and paint more. If they're currently building a side business in their spare time, some kind of entrepreneurial effort that's intended to help them bring in some extra cash or which could potentially serve as the next step in their career, they maybe bring that up. I would spend more time with this passion project of mine. But if you think about what it would really mean, having the fundamentals taken care of, you come to realize that there's a good chance that our conception of what we enjoy, how we want to spend our time, could change pretty radically. That side project might be fun and interesting today because of what it represents. It's a potential escape route from a paycheck and work that you don't particularly enjoy. And it's perhaps, at least in part, satisfying the way that it is because you know it could allow you to earn money, which you could then spend to pay the bills and to pay for rent and to buy groceries, which would in turn buy you more of your time away from work. So it represents freedom from work rather than being something that you maybe truly, absolutely enjoy and are passionate about, isolated from all those economic externalities. Those dance classes and painting nights are perhaps wonderful escapes from your work-heavy lifestyle, but are they truly interesting and captivating to you beyond that? For some people, they absolutely will be, but for others, they're perhaps more valuable in the context of being creative escapes from work. They are outlets that are the exact opposite of what you do at the office all day, and they fit well within the space that you have set aside for creative outlets. They are things that you can do one week a night or that you can do over the course of a weekend but they're not necessarily things that would make sense for you and your preferences within a different context in which you have 24 hours a day and seven days a week to spend on whatever you like. So what happens then when you do have 24 hours a day and seven days a week to work with? The mind almost reels at such a thought. So much of what we know about ourselves, so much of how we define ourselves makes sense through the lens of a career and work and money and traditional economics. But lacking those things, those concerns, a lot of these things that we know about ourselves might make very little sense 
So much of what we do for fun, to feel alive, to feel worthwhile and fulfilled, may look distorted or incomplete without the warping of that work lens. It might all look almost silly in some cases, lacking that common understanding that work is something that we all do a whole lot of the time because of the system in which we exist, because that system requires it of us. And this is a system that we have been told is worth all the downsides, so we play ball. And we don't really have another option because the low floors are kept very low. In part, I suspect, because the system that we have cannot sustain itself without full or nearly full participation. There are not enough resources to allow for the added weight of freeloaders. So the scariness of falling through the cracks all the way down to the floor, that's a feature, not a bug, of this type of system. And so it makes sense that we would see ourselves through the lens of this system that defines how we spend our entire life. It makes sense that it would be difficult to imagine ourselves outside of it, because most of us have never seen ourselves or anyone outside of it. And as a result, it makes it difficult to imagine what that life might be like, what we might prioritize, who we might be, if aspects of that system were to fundamentally change. And this is a system that could change. And what's more, an increasing number of people, whether they want to or not, may be forced to ask themselves those very questions about who they are, what they want, how they want to spend their time. Because those types of changes might be forced upon us, even if we don't bring it about ourselves in an intentional way. A universal basic services system is in some ways similar to many of the universal basic income schemes that have been proposed and tested around the world. The idea is to raise the floor so that if and when people fall due to traditional issues like illness or injury or a shift in their industry of some kind, they'll still be in a good spot regardless. They'll be able to pick themselves back up because the fall wasn't too bad. That floor's not too far down. They can even sit there for a while, on the floor, if they like, and life will not be excruciating. It may not be the same experience as living up in the clouds, up closer to the ceiling, but it'll still be a tenable, survivable, even enjoyable, potentially, situation. Universal basic income systems generally propose to raise the floor by essentially combining all welfare programs into one universal system that everyone or most everyone receives as a check or a tax rebate at regular intervals. Meaning that just by existing, just by being born within a certain country, you get paid. Depending on the proposal we're talking about, it may be grocery money that you're receiving, somewhere in the neighborhood of a few hundred dollars a month, or it could be subsistence money, closer to a few thousand dollars a month. Conceivably, enough to live off of, if you don't need fancy things. Universal Basic Services instead focuses on providing the things that a person needs or might want at the fundamental level, and provides those things instead of the money a person might use to purchase them. There are benefits to approaching the issue this way, rather than just handing out cash, including the aforementioned economies of scale, that would allow providers of housing, for instance, to provide housing more cheaply because they provide so much of it, or to provide things like mobile phone service at an incredibly low cost 
because the marginal costs of each new phone user on a network is incredibly small compared to the initial output required to build that early infrastructure. But at the moment, both of these concepts conflict in some very important ways with the desires of governments and the marketplace. We can look out at the horizon and imagine a day in which we all lose our jobs. We're all made redundant within the span of a few weeks as new technologies and systems emerge that make hiring human beings a ridiculous proposition monetarily. But right now, in the relatively early days of modern automation and narrow artificial intelligence applications, only a small portion of us suffer this fate. Some industries are shrinking precipitously, while others are losing a chunk here, a segment there. It's a slow whittling of jobs rather than an overnight disappearance, so it's less clear what needs to be done, how quickly, and which solutions would be tenable to those who are most affected by these shifts. Pull the trigger too early on a revision of how markets operate and the relationship between citizen and government and the responsibilities held by both, and you cripple the global economy. Any major local economy moving too soon would ripple around the world because of the way that we're all connected to each other these days. But move too late and fail to have plans in place for the day that seems to be almost inevitable at this point. It's not inevitable, as anything could happen to derail this trajectory that we seem to be on, but it is increasingly likely. Move too late to address these issues and you find yourself fighting the previous war today. You find yourself without the right tools, without the proper infrastructure, and whatever ends up happening next, you're the last one to the party. You're second rate in the new world order. You have failed your citizenry and the interconnected global system, whatever that system might evolve into. All of which is to say that I personally think that there's a lot to look forward to here. I think the difficult questions we'll have to ask ourselves will be difficult, and our answers will be partially informed by what those next collective steps look like, how our governments and markets reshape themselves for the new realities that are, depending on who you ask, either waiting right outside the door or a few decades away or a hundred years off. But at the same time, it's important that we try not to assume too much and that we have as many options to choose from possible, that we build up an arsenal of options in the meantime, just in case. I'll close out this episode by saying, first, if you want to know more about UBIs and UBSs, there are some excellent outlines and overviews available, and I will link to those in the show notes. I've also spoken about UBIs in past episodes, so you can go back and listen to some of those to learn about some different facets of this topic, to view it from some different perspectives. But I also want to make clear that although these concepts are absolutely interesting, and potentially civilization-shifting in a positive way, there are still a lot of questions worth asking and concerns worth harboring. And the more you are optimistic about something, it behooves you to be even more skeptical about those things that you have a natural inclination toward. So it's super vital that we do not ignore the difficult questions before we actually know how things will really shake out. There was a piece published on Medium recently by a guy named Simon Saris, which was entitled After Universal Basic Income, The Flood. This piece raises and addresses a series of important questions and concerns about universal basic incomes, which 
also often apply to UBSs, including one that seems obvious, but which is very seldom asked. What happens if you try to implement a UBI and it fails? At what point do we stop and say, okay, this is not working? And who makes that decision? How long do you wait? How do you come back from a wholesale reformatting of a country's market? And how can you build a successful UBI program if you don't fully commit? So if you do try to implement a stopgap and say, we'll try this for a couple of years and then go back if it doesn't work, how can we actually have a successful UBI program if we do not commit fully, if we have that type of backtrack capability in place? It seems like a lot of the benefits would be lost if we don't go all in because then people would not make significant changes to how they do things and significant investments because of those changes, knowing that the economy could revert to another system if things do go sideways. But if you fully commit, you also potentially commit your country, your government, to economic disaster with no obvious way out. Another good question is, how do we make such a system more resilient? How do we make it less fragile? Wouldn't a hundred or a thousand smaller governments operating under such a system be preferable to one overarching government for a country when it comes to organizing and orchestrating UBI and UBS programs? Wouldn't that allow for more evolution opportunities, more variations on the theme, while also spreading around the risk potential so that a few could fail and be picked back up by the others, whereas trusting it all to one central authority would have just one big point of failure and would only be able to enact one method of income and services distribution. But on the other hand, if you do spread it around and have a hundred governments instead of one, wouldn't that reduce some of the benefits, some of the economies of scale, some of the efficiencies if we did it that way? There are a lot of questions that need asking within this space of the system and the concepts involved, but also of ourselves, how we will operate as individuals and how we will organize as societies. What's most important, though, even more important than the answers, at this point at least, is that we are asking, is that we are having these conversations and allowing the discussion to go wherever it might so that we can stand a better chance of being optimally prepared for whatever comes next. The book that I'd like to recommend today is one that I just finished. It's called Fantasyland, subtitle How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. This book is by Kurt Anderson. I enjoyed the premise of this book immediately. The writing style is also a lot of fun. It's very easy to take in. It's got kind of a natural storytelling style to it, so it reads almost like fiction. And the premise is that, essentially, the United States of America is a country that is built on magical thinking. And this was true at the very beginning, from our founders, to the faiths that they held, to the magical thinking secularists that came up with these imaginary ideologies that hadn't existed elsewhere or that existed elsewhere but hadn't been seen in this way before, all the way up to modern days where we have technologists 
and people inventing religions around technologies, but also the non-religious worship, in some cases, of certain technological ideals. One could argue that a lot of the people dreaming about the utopian outcomes of universal basic income are people who are succumbing to a type of magical thinking. And then, of course, it also plays very well with the current political situation happening here in the United States and elsewhere. The idea that a person's opinion is just as good as fact and other, unfortunately, quite common themes of that sort. The author is quite rough with religion. He doesn't really spare time to make any arguments about why certain ideas are nonsensical according to empirical evidence and things like that. So the tone might not be a favorite of some potential readers, but at the same time, it makes sense within the context of the book and within the arguments that he's making. And he does do an excellent job of tying together these diverse people and groups of people and historical happenings within the United States in particular, tying them together into a unified narrative and showing that what is happening today is not new. It's just an extension of a lot of things that have happened before. That book again is Fantasy Land, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History by Kurt Anderson. You can find out more about me and the work that I do at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on Twitter or Instagram or wherever the kids are hanging out these days. My username most places is Colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.